Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of the Politicali podcast. I'm Jude. I'm Jack. I'm Jeremiah. And our first issue is an international issue. There is a historic general strike going on in India right now. Um, it started on the 26th of November, and there are an estimated 250 million people participating. It is the biggest general strike in history. Um, and I'm mentioning this because there is very little media coverage, especially in the West, about this strike. So it was organized by around 10 different trade unions across the country in response to Indian Prime Minister Modi, his uh, corporate policies. And some of their demands are increased rations, uh, more aid for the coronavirus pandemic, and stopping the privatization of various sectors in the Indian economy, providing a pension for all, and stopping forced premature retirement in government and the public sector. This is, like you said, this is not getting much media coverage in the West. Like, I knew about it, but I hadn't heard much. I haven't seen any, like, major news outlets um, talking about this. So I just, I think it's really good that we're discussing it. Um, because it's not something that like someone like me has seen, and I think a lot of other people can agree with that, that they haven't seen much about this. Absolutely. And it's interesting. There are a lot of parallels right now between police brutality in the U.S. and some things going on in India with the strikes. There was a viral video, for example, of a paramilitary policeman swinging his baton at an elderly man um, who was participating in the strikes. Um so there, the the government is really cracking down on the strikes and is not happy about it. Well, I think the issue of, you know, specifically, like you said, police brutality, like um, it definitely is an issue here in the United States, but I think it's much more of also an international issue. We're not the only nation in the world that struggles with that issue. But like you said, like you can see the parallels between it. And so it really proves that like this, the United States specifically is not the only nation that is struggling with an issue like that to put this into perspective 250 million people um would be like the entire adult working population of the united states going on strike plus 100 million more people uh it, it's a massive strike and it's led by the leftist and communist parties in india but it, it is truly historic and on the topic of police brutality there was a um, uh, his, another historic act passed by the House of Representatives this week, Jeremiah, right? Yes. So um, actually yesterday, December 4th, 2020, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. Um, it's often shortened to the MORE Act. Um, this bill, um, there was a lot of provisions underneath it, but the five main ones are that it would remove cannabis from the Controlled Substance Act, um, and also, it would remove it as a Schedule One substance, which is good considering heroin is also a Schedule One substance. So currently, marijuana and heroin are on the same level in the eyes of the government. Um, it would facilitate the expungement of past marijuana convictions. It would tax uh, cannabis products at 5% to pay for various criminal and social reform projects inside the bill. Um, it would prohibit the denial of getting federal uh, public benefits like housing um, and welfare on the basis of cannabis use. And would deny, um, not deny, it would make it illegal for the use or possession of marijuana to affect someone's immigration status under current immigration laws. 
This bill actually has been in Congress for quite a while. It was first introduced by Representative Jerry Nadler and Senator Kamala Harris on July 23rd, 2019. Um, and it passed the House Judiciary Committee on November 20th, 2019. And it didn't really have much action on it until um, this week. It was passed in the House of Representatives uh, yesterday, December 4th, uh, on a 220 to 164 vote, which this bill was mostly passed on party lines, but there were a few people from either party that voted against or for, um, like, split away from the majority. So there were five Republicans that voted for it, uh, Matt Guyette, Brian Mast, Tom McClinic, Denver Riggleman, and Don Young, and there were six Democrats who voted against. Connor Lamb, Dan Lempitsky, Colin Peterson, Cherry Bustos, Henry Culiar, and very unfortunately, New Hampshire's own Chris Pappas. Uh, New Hampshire, I mean, Chris Pappas is currently the representative for New Hampshire's first district in the House of Representatives. Um, he is a Democrat. Um, he's actually the only representative, the only House representative in New England to vote no on this bill. And this is not a good thing because it proves that just, you know, him having the Democrat party next to his name does not mean that he is perfect. It does not mean that he's free from like voting, like voting against bills that could help a lot of people. And specifically in New Hampshire, uh, a state that doesn't have legal marijuana, but the majority of residents support legalizing marijuana. Um, in a UNH poll that was done in 2019, 68% of New Hampshire residents said they supported the legalization of marijuana. Um, and so him voting no on this truly shows that he's not voting in the interest of what people in New Hampshire are saying. Um, and the new the um, union leader did get a statement from him. Uh, so I have this statement. He said, I have serious concerns about the many unanswered questions that I've heard from local public health and safety experts in my state about expunging certain federal drug convictions and implementing aspects of this legislation. I feel we should not rush this bill through when Congress has yet to act on a COVID-19 relief package that is so badly needed as Americans continue to face a global pandemic and an economic crisis. Ensuring fairness in our justice system and keeping our communities safe are not mutually exclusive. We can and must do both. And I'm hopeful this issue can be addressed through the legislative process next time. Um, he did say that he thinks that it's more important that we do act on a COVID-19 relief bill, but the last sentence of what he said when he said, I'm hopeful this issue can be addressed through the legislative process next time, that really bugs me because, um, like, we had this bill introduced a year and a half ago, and it finally got voted on yesterday, and he's saying that, oh, you know, next legislative process, I hope it can be addressed, but if not now, then when? Like, we shouldn't be thinking about these issues that we're facing um, that would be addressed in this bill as in, like, oh, we'll get them next time. Like, it's not something that he can just chalk up to being, like, oh, I hope this gets addressed next time. Because the things that were mentioned in this bill, the, th the provisions, a lot of them are very, like, even affect people not just in New Hampshire but across the country. Um, you know, the it would facilitate the expungement of past marijuana convictions, which... One out, of eight, one out of eight incarcerated people in the United States is in there on a marijuana conviction. So that would affect one out of eight ev of people that are incarcerated. And just in New Hampshire, like we don't have legalized marijuana, but we have decriminalized marijuana. Um, him voting against this truly does not show that he's voting in the interest of what New Hampshire voters are saying. Now, you said that there were some, some representatives that crossed party lines. I, uh, one that that really stuck out to me when I was researching this bill is 
uh, Florida Representative Matt Gates, a notorious Trump loyalist, uh, crossed party lines to even sponsor the Moore Act and and also voted for it. Um, this isn't a huge bipartisan bill, but with with some across the aisle support, how do you think this bill will fare in the Senate, or is it just another example of a Democratic House sort of making a statement to the nation about policy? Um, well, it's interesting that you say, um, you know, how I think it'll fare in the Senate. The I think the chances of it passing in the Senate are very limited. Uh, just because of the composition currently. And also, there are Democrats in the Senate that probably would not vote for this. Like, there's no guarantee that all of them would vote for it, and many Republicans would be opposed to it. But, um, I mean, I think there's a chance. But the more, the most important thing that I think that we can get out of this is that this is sending a message to the next Congress and the next administration, the Biden administration, that uh, marijuana legalization and just even the decriminal, like the federal decriminalization of marijuana is an issue that is very important and something that needs to be addressed. But as for the Senate, I really don't think that it will pass in the Senate. I think there's a tiny chance. But just with the current composition and even, um, like I said, there's no guarantee that every Democrat would vote for it. Um, I'm not sure if we would see the same bipartisan support that we saw in the House. Um, I think it's also important to note that one of the Democrats that voted against it, Dan Limpinski, uh, lost in his primary to a Sunrise Movement um, endorsed candidate who ended up winning her election. And then also Colin Peterson lost his election. So two of the Democrats that voted against it lost their elections. That is an interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I definitely think that um, with this bill, I agree with you there, Jeremiah, that I think that um, there's less of a chance that it will pass or um, have much appreciation in the in support in the the Senate just because of as you're saying the who typically um, who is currently there and who is representing um, the United States in the Senate right now especially with the um, Mitch McConnell and such but I think uh, what gives me hope um, for um, this bill and then uh, whether or not there are future bills like this trying to to fight um, for uh, marijuana decriminalization is the fact that um, as we're moving into uh, the Biden-Harris presidency, um, we're looking at a more progressive, um, progressive-friendly um, policymaking, I think, and support in the White House. I think that'll definitely um, compel uh, not only um, some of our representatives, but also some of our senators and our legislators to act um, uh, in accordance to what the White House and um, what the people what the people want. But I think that, um, well, obviously Joe Biden and Kamala Harris aren't um, necessarily the most uh, progressive or um, like excited about this type of thing. Uh, Harris has obviously endorsed this and is fighting for this. Um, and I think that that really gives us promise for um, working towards this and, and fighting this fight and um, righting some of the, the past wrongs that our country has had with this issue. Uh, that's a yes. good point, Jack. And I also wanted to add that it's certainly not guaranteed that the, the composition of the Senate will look like it does when Biden and Harris are sworn in come January. Um, if you look at the recent polling in the two Georgia runoff elections, Raphael Warnock, the Democrat um, running, is actually slightly ahead of his challenger, and Ossoff and Purdue are neck and neck. So it will be very interesting to look at the outcome 
of that those two elections and how they affect the composition of the Senate. Yeah, and I think that that makes it all more important that, you know, it makes the Georgia runoffs are already, you know, very crucial, but this especially makes it even like another thing is at stake. Like it's adding on to the list of things that are at stake in these elections in Georgia. And I mean, even if we got a 50-50, a 50-50 would have a lot more chance for passage in the Senate than a 48-52. And it would also mean that Mitch McConnell has no more monopoly on on what bills are even sent to the floor, because even if uh, the majority of the Senate supported a bill, there is no guarantee that Mitch McConnell would let it pass to a floor vote. Exactly. And then 50-50, if it came to a 50-50 vote, uh, Kamala Harris would be the deciding vote, and she's one of the people that introduced this bill. So I think getting to that point would have a lot more, like, that would be a lot better. I think it's also fascinating because Kamala Harris, if you remember back to the primaries, was was criticized on a national debate stage for her prosecutorial record and prosecuting Californians for minor marijuana convictions. And the fact that she has co-sponsored legislation to both decriminalize marijuana and expunge all minor marijuana convictions off records is is truly growth. Yes. I also think that this um, is going to send a message to uh, President-elect Biden that, you know, you picked a vice president who uh, introduced this bill like you need to hold up on your promises and hold up on what the voters are saying. Like it's really going to be a test of whether or not he decides to go through with, you know, um, even if this doesn't pass, if he decides to, you know, fight for more marijuana legislation and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely like that. Um... Kamala Harris is, she is a senator and she was acting on policy and she was a, um, a lawyer. And I think the fact that she, as, as Drew is saying, the growth here, I think, um, I think it's uh, growth that I think she might have occurred naturally, but I think it's also growth that was basically mandated to happen if um, she was going to get uh, support as a vice president and uh, Joe Biden reelected. And I, I think that um, this more progressive and this more uh, accepting and um, comfortable way that she's doing this. The fact that um, she is now has the ability, she's, she's working for policy as a senator right now, and then Kamala Harris is going to be the vice president of the United States. I think that's um, that transfer from both having the mind of the, that legislator in the Senate and um, her support and her ties to Congress. I think will definitely help um, the Biden and the Biden presidency as um, they trans transition into power and as they um, start to work with Congress and um, con control the White House and, and address the problems of this country. Because I definitely think that um, her experience there, both past and now her current um, influence that she has, uh, will definitely make it easier for them to transition into power and then. Um, control policy and uh, work towards a, a better America from their point of view. Absolutely. All right. So I was thinking uh, we can transition over to a more social and societal issue. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the m more um, philosophical things that we've been kind of experiencing and looking at recently has been uh, what I've enjoyed to watch over Twitter is uh as many people know, Harry Styles um, was the first uh, solo male cover of Vogue magazine. 
Uh, this is in all of their 128 issues. Um, for the, so for the December uh, 2020 issue, uh, he made history um, by wearing a ball gown from Gucci on that cover. Um, and uh, there's been uh, a, a very positive response, uh, but there's also been a lot of criticism um, from strong uh, and traditional conservatives. Uh, one of the more famous tweets that occurred uh, was Candace Owens' tweet. Uh, she says, there is no society that can survive without strong men. The East know this. In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright attack. Bring back manly men. Um, and Harry Styles' response to this was to uh, post another picture on his Instagram, um, this time wearing a, a baby blue suit and a skirt combination, uh, using the same statement that uh, Owens put, saying, bring back manly men. Um, and I think one of the, the, one of the biggest uh, questions for us in like the 21st century is uh, how society defines gender roles and norms. And um, as a society, how we treat people in regard to how they identify and who they identify as. Um, and so far in, in our history across the world, um, clothes have been a very um, kind of polarizing way that society labels people. Uh, in, in this case, in the terms of what we associate with masculinity and femininity, because uh, that's currently what Candace, Owen, uh, Candace Owens is talking about. Um, and I think if we look at it from a more progressive side of things, more progressive perspective, um, we can see uh, the concept of gender as a spectrum and not such a quite a binary way of identification. Um, but in this case, uh, Candace Owens finds it more of an issue um, because she views it as that binary um, way of looking at things. And she finds an issue with it. She's threatened by it you know, as, as she tweets because of the fact that Harry Styles, uh, being someone who identifies as male, um, is also wearing articles of clothing that society uh, generally considers to be feminine. Uh, I think if, if we look at her tweet and what she's writing there, we can uh, really break apart what she's saying and how she establishes different things as masculine and attributes certain things to masculinity. Um, and in turn, what I think traditional society norms are for men. Uh, she first, she, she reads it as, there is no society than, that can exist without strong men. Um, this is her first claim in which she establishes this, this belief and this um, kind of fundamentally and very polar way that she thinks. Um, and as we've experienced, I think, a lot in our lives, uh, the societal norm, the expectation for men is to be strong, capable, and this often leads to aggression and um, kind of a blunt way of doing things. And what we see often is the societal role of men being the, the protector and uh, people often associate um, what they see as femininity in society as kind of a weakness and femininity in men or what society per perceives to be feminine attributes in men is perceived as, as weakness. And I think a really good example of um, what I think Candace Owens or who Candace Owens might view as, as the, the good man, the, the example man, the, uh, the strong man she's talking about in this case is uh, like film heroes like James Bond or John Wick. Uh, 
which both characters obviously uh, in this action sense and isn't life isn't quite in that degree but i think there are some things that we can take from them um in how they're portrayed in their movies and how they're portrayed in their books and media i think if we look at them uh, both characters are aggressive and dangerous and both um, are dressed in what we consider society consider considers um, traditionally masculine um, obviously these movies they're movies um, so they they kill a lot of people and it's very violent and raw and rough around the edges um, but i think every day we don't really need to kill people to prove our strength uh, nor should we um, improve our masculinity i don't think candace owens thinks that either I think what it really comes down to what she, um, what the society sees as who men should be and who men are is uh, that men should be capable and confident in their skills and be prepared for whatever comes to them. Vulnerability and personal identity is not what society typically expects of men. It's actually discouraged. Um, Candace Owens says it is an outright attack in regard to this and she, she feels threatened um, because I mean, wearing a ball gown is not practical or it's not associated with strength or ability. And ultimately his message from this um, was who cares? Um, why does it matter? It, it's not important how I dress, it doesn't impact you. And I think this is a message that we should, that, that we should really think about and, and, and and ponder just because what we do and how we define our own personality and how we think about our identification um, with gender and with society, I think it ultimately doesn't matter to other people and it shouldn't um, impact others in such a negative way. Ultimately, obviously, how we act and how we dress is influenced by societal beliefs. Um, but what gives me hope uh, in this case is the fact that we are taking those steps and that Vogue has presented this. And now people are defending him and he's defended himself because he can wear what he wants. And that shouldn't matter to, that shouldn't matter how society identifies him or what society expect of him, expects him to wear, but he wears it because he likes it. And Jack, I think one of the key words in what you said was perceive, perceives as masculine, what, per, uh, what society perceives as feminine, because, I mean, dresses were historically worn by men, like Victorian boys wore dresses and skirts a lot, um, men wore makeup and wigs, and, and gender roles and the genderization of different objects and different fashions changes over time. And I think one of the promising things to come out of this and and to come out of recent years is that we don't need to gender everything. We don't need to gender objects or pieces of cloth. And we, we just need to let people express themselves however they see fit. And I think another interesting point is when this Vogue cover, this Vogue cover came out, um, it was right around uh, International Men's Day. And I saw a lot of people online posting about how, oh, you know, the male suicide rate is so high and the male you know sexual assault rate is so high and then in the same sense they come after harry styles and i'm i'm mostly i'm mostly focusing on like them talking about how like these male issues need to be brought to light um i see a lot of men not even just celebrity men and not even just you know like like a lot of men that would be like my age and a little older 
and stuff coming after him and saying that he's lost his masculinity, like, you know, and they hate that. But then in the same sense, they also talk about how these male issues, like males are so like, they're not allowed to show their emotions. They're not allowed to, you know, the male suicide rate is so high. They want to bring these issues to light. But in the same sense, they come after him for, you know, wearing a dress on a Vogue cover. And it just doesn't make sense to me. It's super hypocritical of them because if they really cared about men's issues, they would, it doesn't matter if they like what he's wearing a dress. It obviously like they're not the ones wearing the dress he is, but it doesn't matter if they don't like the dress. Like if they truly want to have, you know, like they want to bring down the male suicide rate and they want men's issues to be brought to light. They can't be so adamant and say so many negative things about him. I completely agree. The The first step to addressing the men's mental health crisis is for men to be less judgmental of their fellow men. And I think a lot of the the issue comes from within the community and not outside of it. Yeah, I definitely think that um, the, judgment, the judgmental part is, is a really big aspect of um, how people who identify as men um, show that and and perform in that manner because i think a lot of it is it competition i think with, with a lot of men there it's 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 constantly um trying to compete and trying to to perform better than people who are also men and i think in, in that case the 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 vulnerability part and the what society associates is more feminine i think that's really what that um, what that 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 stigma that that hate that that anger that um, I'm trying to bring down um, the the men's suicide rate and, and then they're also seeing this and they're seeing that wait this guy isn't exactly how I identify as a man and I, I don't think that there should be truly one identification because there can't be everyone's a different person um, and everyone can if they in especially this case you can identify as a man in however manner you want to and that's a very personal it's a very intimate way of doing things and it, it's different Definitely. for everyone else and I, I think that the problem that is happening is while i like the idea of working to improve um men's issues and issues that affect men i really don't think that um, working to improve those issues can be done just by looking at how we want men or what we expect from men, because really men are all over the world and not everybody is going to be influenced the same way. And truly the issues that impact men are the same issues that impact everyone on the planet and doing it and trying to reserve it in such a way seeing that this this is negative while still trying to improve men's issues is you're right very hypocritical but i think also as with every issue this ties into political and policy issues even just as a cultural issue because mental health services are extremely inaccessible especially in america um and and if so many men are struggling with with mental health i think a big step besides cultural steps um, is to make things like therapy and mental health services available for the men and just everyone who need them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that um, that emotional vulnerability with the, with the therapy and the mental health part is, is very difficult for um, 
a lot of people identify as male just because society expects, as I was talking about um, earlier, that the the emotional knowledge, the emotional um, kind of education and the vulnerability that comes with that isn't something that we typically expect or encourage for men. Um, I think another aspect of that that I, I didn't actually end up talking about with um, the, the examples I provided, James Bond and um, John Wick, uh, was with James Bond, uh, there is, for some of the, the classic films, there is some emotional uh, kind of knowledge and, and charm there. Um, but in his case, uh, there's only the vulnerability in order to uh, seduce and perform um, well with women and appear attractive. Um, but it, it, instead of using it as something that benefits him as an emotional person um, and as a happiness point of view, it's used as uh, something that makes him like a tool. Um, That's a good observation, and you see that on on social media and and in pop culture as well, definitely. Most definitely, and um, also when you said that she had said, um, you know, like we need to bring back manly men. To me and to a lot of other people, like this is a common, not a common, but I've heard a lot of things and a lot of people agreeing with when like people say, you know, someone who dresses feminine but you know still identifies masculine they're still a man their identity is still a man and when we gender these things when we gender you know clothing and even something as simple as nail polish and like it used to not always be like this like you said in victorian days like men would wear dresses and that's an example but when men do that it's not like their masculinity goes away they're still masculine he's still the same person he was before he put on the dress versus after and it's seen as like a lot of people would see it as, oh, he's lost his masculinity. But to me, I think he's a lot more in touch with his masculinity because he knows how to like use it. But he also knows he's in so control that he's not afraid to present in a way that a lot of people would perceive as feminine because wearing a dress is seen as feminine, even because it's been gendered. He's not afraid to present himself in that way. So I think that really shows that he is in touch with his masculinity. Yeah, I mean, if, if we look at... <laughs> The, the physical characteristics of um, male and female people, I think that the dress makes makes a lot of sense for men. Um, and I think that it really shouldn't, it, it doesn't change how or who that person is. And, and I agree that um, that confidence and that comfortable um, ability to have like who I am, that that's my personal identity and having um, the confidence in that and I think that is a, is, it's a great example of, um, I think, something that relates to the typical societal view of what masculinity is, right? Like, we're, we're supposed to be confident. We're supposed to be capable. capable. We're supposed to be, um, like, we're supposed to have the ability and we're supposed to be able to act. And I think that Harry Styles is wearing that dress and putting it out there, I think, falls right into that 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 definition that is being provided to us by these people who are against it and and i think that um they have issue with with what that is and i think that it it'll really um be interesting to me especially how how that will um progress because as as we know um even if you are dressing in what 
is typically assumed and uh, associated with a, a masculine way, there is still that other side of the judgment of the caring about how you look and putting effort into yourself that society also views as feminine. So I really think that um, as we progress in the society and as uh, the world changes and hopefully our societal view changes, um, I, I really look forward to um, people who identify as men and people in general uh, to be more comfortable with who they are and um, men especially being vulnerable um, for, for who they are and wearing whatever they want to wear just because they look good in it. They, they feel comfortable. So I really feel that we shouldn't care as much as we do um, because it doesn't really matter in um, a wide uh, sense of things, uh, the impact of what um, I'm wearing compared to what other people are wearing um, because I feel that that way of expression is much more personal and is much more, more close to you than it is um, societal. Let's move on to our final topic, which is Joe Biden's cabinet. Um, now, President-elect Biden's transition team has been working around the clock, and we're finally beginning to get a glimpse of what a Biden-Harris administration will look like. And to be quite frank, some of that glimpse has been a little bit alarming, and that, that return to normalcy that Biden promised is certainly happening with a lot of Washington insiders and former presidential advisors returning to DC in, in senior roles. Um, now, if I were to talk about every single controversial cabinet pick, we would be here all night. So I will talk about a few of the most uh, contentious ones. Uh, to start off, we have Antony Blinken. He has been tapped for Biden's nominee for Secretary of State. Um, he's one of Obama's veteran advisors. He served as Deputy National Security Advisor and Deputy Secre uh, Secretary of State. Um, and he is, by any metric, a member of the D.C. foreign policy establishment. And some of his past positions have been very alarming to progressives. He, he disagreed with Biden and supported a, an armed intervention in Libya that went pretty disastrously. Um, He's argued that Israel should keep receiving extremely large amounts of, of aid uh, from the U.S. So a lot of progressives are just generally uh, disappointed with that sort of establishment foreign policy figure that will be in charge of, of the Biden administration and its relation to the rest of the world. Next up, Neera Tandon. Neera Tandon has been tapped for... Uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget, the White House Office of Management and Budget. Um, she is a huge Hillary Clinton loyalist. She's worked on, she's ran Clinton's campaign. She's been legislative director and policy director for Clinton. She also worked with Bill Clinton's campaign um, and was an associate director for domestic policy in the Bill Clinton White House. Um, so she has been has been involved with the Clintons for a very long time. She is also CEO and founder of the Center for American Progress, which is a center-left um, emphasis on center think tank um, for policy. And progressives are generally disillusioned with Neera Tandon. Um, 
Uh, Brianna Joy Gray, former press secretary for Senator Bernie Sanders, tweeted, quote, everything toxic about the corporate Democratic Party is embodied in Neera Tandon, uh, which is not a glowing recommendation, to say the least. Um, Sanders himself criticized the destructive role of the Center for American Progress under Tandon, saying again, quote, Neera Tandon repeatedly calls for unity while simultaneously maligning my staff and supporters and belittling progressive ideas. Um, so, so both of these show that Biden is not quite embracing the progressive wing of the party that, that settled for him and helped elect him. Um, and, and a lot of leftists are not happy with his cabinet picks. Then lastly, one of the most controversial is Rahm Emanuel, who has been who is rumored to be tapped for transportation secretary. It's very likely that he will be nominated as secretary of transportation. Um, Rahm Emanuel has served in many, many roles, but one of his most controversial was his record as mayor of Chicago. Um, I, it would be hard to list again, all of his controversial moves as mayor. Um, some of the highlights, he closed over 50 public elementary schools which is the single largest school closure in American history. Not to mention that most of these schools were in underserved African-American communities on the south and west sides of the city. And those communities needed the resources and when they needed them most, those schools were shuttered. Um, in that same vein, he closed half of Chicago's public mental health clinics, leaving many patients who were in dire need of care without the opportunity to receive it. He also privatized many, many city services, uh, like school janitorial services and trash collection were privatized, uh, which did not benefit the people of Chicago and dirty class classrooms and terrible recycling rates were widespread after the privatization of those vital, vital resources. And most controversially, Rahm Emanuel helped cover up the police murder of a black teen by a white police officer. Laquan McDonald was a 17-year-old African-American uh, citizen from Chicago who was murdered by police officer Jason Van Dyke. Um, he was shot 16 times and killed um, when he was posing no clear threat to that officer. Um, now, Rahm Emanuel did not publicly acknowledge this until his re-election. He did not acknowledge this until over a year after the murder um, until the judge was forced to, until the judge forced the release of the footage of the murder and including 80 minutes of nearby surveillance video footage that mysteriously went missing. Um, and Emmanuel never really recovered politically from that. Uh, his city was incredibly outraged. There were ongoing protests after that footage was released, was released by a judge over a year after the events took place. Um, so all of this does not add up to an incredibly progressive figure um, being tapped for this White House position. And again, progressives, people who are concerned with the Black Lives Matter movement especially, are not incredibly happy about his upcoming role in the Biden-Harris administration. Yeah, I think what this, what this uh, poses is the same concept of um, a division within the democratic establishment and um, the inability for uh, Joe Biden to represent um, the more progressive values that the voters that, that won him the election had because 
Um, the problem with Joe Biden is the fact that he is a, a traditional Democrat and that he is very, um, very reserved with a lot of his positions um, and his policy. And I think that what comes with this is it's just the same issue of um, a lack of change and a lack of um, initiative really within the higher ups of the democratic establishment um, in representing the, the values of some of their more progressive voters, which make up um, a, a good portion of that population. Um, not necessarily all of it, um, obviously, but, but a, a good number of people who um, had to support uh, the Biden presidency um, this, this, this year. And I really think that what we're gonna run into there is that um, with those picks, we might not have the opportunity to really um, make use of this presidency um, and make use of um, the opportunity because really um, Joe Biden was, was a, a, a way out of um, Donald Trump. And I think the expectation was that um, it was, it was really the only uh, reasonable choice for a lot of um, left-leaning voters. Um, but there isn't much of an expectation that Joe Biden will be a, a two-term president um, just because of, um, number one, how old he is, and number two, his lack of support within, his lack, the lack of unity for support for him uh, within the Democratic Party. Because um, I, I really think that uh, with picking these people, um, this nothing much will really change. Um, and he's not going to have that support if he does try to run a second time um, from his more progressive voters. Yeah, and um, I think a lot of people, um, not even just uh, progressives, but I think a lot of people think that the issues that um, the progressive movement is fighting for are very important, um, you know, healthcare and education and cannabis reform and things like that. Like a lot of people, the majority of Americans do support these policies. And so when Biden picks people that are not very progressive and are just going to continue the status quo of what's happening, it's really sending a message of him not caring about what uh, people are saying. And also, like you said, progressives helped him get elected and he's not really delivering on, um, he's not delivering on what he should be because if these progressives, you know, they had to beg people to vote for him. They had to really like make themselves not hate him so much that they had such a problem with voting for him. They voted for him, and now he's, um, he's not following through with uh, things that would help them and things that voters uh, that did vote for him really do care about. And he's picking people that not even are bad policy wise, but have, you know, like you said, uh, with the last one, who's the mayor of Chicago, that made very bad decisions that um, affected a lot of people. And by him picking these, it really just sends a message of him not really caring. And uh, you said, like, he said that, like, things will go back to normal, but we shouldn't be going back to the normal status quo and picking people that are just going to keep the normality of these Absolutely. issues the, that are so the important. People who who really had a stake in these vital issues and, and bit their tongue and got him elected. He should honor his progressive promises to them and, and honor their values in office. And I think the, the idea that, and the message that he's sending with appointing these people um, who, for instance, like working with the Clinton campaigns and working for Obama, 
obviously I like the idea that these people have experience and are prepared um, the knowledge wise for some reason. You can, you can question how prepared some of these people are with the decisions they made. Um, but this is again, what you were saying, Jeremiah, of the returning to normality that the democratic party isn't really doing a whole ton of change. I, I don't feel we should return back to the same people all the time who've already worked in these campaigns because this is a new campaign. This is a new president. I think it should be newer people and people who can voice new opinions and more progressive opinions and just different opinions and different ideas. And returning back to the same people who have already been with the democratic establishment for a really long time, it means the democratic establishment isn't gonna change in the progressive way that I feel that it should, um, especially with some of their newer, younger voters and um, outreach that they've done into more communities that they had to do for this election. We're all definitely interested to see how a Biden presidency will unfold and whether he will honor the progressive promises that he made on the campaign trail. Um, on that note, thank you for tuning in to the first episode of Politic Alley, and we will see you next week.